Oh, Lois. This isn't a question. It was just a, a comment that I appreciate the fact that um, at the end of where you were talking about we need to be um, submissive to our spouses, how you applied the, how the men are submissive to their wives. And, right. and uh, I thought that was good. To, for, thank you for that explanation. Well, I, th I think properly viewed, all those relationships, there's a submitting of oneself. So how do I submit myself to my wife? I prefer her needs. I put myself in front. I take the, the damage and the, 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 the punishment and the penalty that's coming our way, whatever there is to be suffering. Just as Christ took the punishment of our sin I'm, and gave himself up, I'm to do that. And I'm also to do that with an eye to purifying her with the water of the word. So I'm, my time isn't my own to do what I want with. I'm just, I submit myself to her in that way in the same way that I have to submit myself to my children and discipling and, and raising them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Like I'm, we're all doing this. It's going to look different in different contexts. But yeah, that, that head sentence sets up the entire household code. One way of looking at the entire household code is different forms of mutual submission that look very differently. You've got to stress that because some people want to undo the entire notion of husband's roles, wives' roles by saying, no, it's just all mutual submission. No, no, Paul spells it out. A husband looks very different than the wives. But it does introduce the whole household code of that sentence. So thank you. And yeah. No? You want? Okay. Anybody else? Anybody else? I got some places we can go. You can raise questions if you do. Let, let me ask. Oh, George is going to go. George is going to go. Hit it, George. Uh, uh, I think we have some blanks. Oh, okay. Um, where, where is it? It's right in the Ephesians. It's where the passage is. Right. Yeah, I don't see. Here, give me a minute. It's Ephesians. All right. Now it's good I guess I can come back to me. Oh, here we go. Okay. Uh, uh, in number, so number one, A2. Blank, blank, blank. Words, hearts, relationships. Thanks. And then 2A. Mutually exclusive. Thank you. Uh, I, have, I have one question. Okay. Uh, for Piper has talked about... Um, being filled, I think it's from Galatians 3, on um, we're filled with the Spirit essentially as we, um, I think that's right. It's like being filled with the Spirit happens as we hear, uh, hear the Word in the same way that we're justified uh, by hearing, hearing the Word and the, the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ. Do you have any, any thoughts on that? Like how, like the, uh, when we're filled, we're passively filled by the Spirit, is there anything actively... Uh, that we can do. You kind of mentioned like pray, um, implied prayer, praying along with scripture, um, like uh, along the the structures of scripture, and uh, kind of a similar thing in, in your sermon. But yeah, I think that the first two contrasts because there's massive overlap. So my argument is, my reasoning is, Paul gives three contrasts. The first two share massive similarity. Like, seriously, what distinction can you make between unwise and folly? I mean, th those are really close, similar ideas. Now, positively, walk in wisdom, walk wisely, walk discerning the will of the Lord. There's still some significant overlap there, right? Um, and so 
either you've got the first two contrasts are really similar, but the third one's totally different. Or, what I'm taking it to mean, we've, we've, we're, Paul's describing three thing, one thing the three ways. So two, have your mind set on the wisdom of God, especially as revealed in Ephesians. His eternal purpose to unite all things in Christ. His eternal purpose to demonstrate his wisdom to the watching world and to angels and principalities in the church through his multi-ethnicity and his diversity. And that's, that's dividing all this down. He's got a new man. And his wisdom in um, that we have a spirit of revelation and wisdom in comprehending the, the hope of our calling, the wealth of our inheritance, and his tremendous power towards us. So, so to the degree that we got that on our mind, not on wisdom, to the degree that we're also pursuing what, what, what does God's word say? What should I do? How do I discern his will and not getting into folly? I think you are being filled by the Spirit. Um, not that they're necessarily identical, but there's, if you're able to do the first two contrasts, you're doing the third one. Like, you, you get what I'm saying? Because he doesn't specifically say how to be passively filled. So then when I look at Colossians, and I see that being the word of Christ dwelling you richly confirms this understanding. So what I can do but to be filled with the Spirit is I can give the Holy Spirit plenty of ammunition of his favorite weapon of choice, the sword, to use. And although I'm mixing metaphors because you think like bullets, right? Um, but in other words, this is the tool the Holy Spirit uses. I want it everywhere in my mind, in my heart, so that the Holy Spirit, I can't make the Holy Spirit move and do something, but I can certainly leave his favorite tool everywhere in my mind. That's as close as I could come to. And I'd also say, by contrast, avoiding things that can control my mind and my attitude, avoiding intoxicants, being clear-headed, sober-minded um, as well, that I, I think we could do that. But that's, that's my thoughts. Yeah, it's similar to your framework for like putting off But that's like where I want to go with this for a few minutes, and you guys can ask questions if you want. When I first became a Christian back in the summer of '99, I had a much more—I mean, it wasn't like super mystical, but I definitely had a more mystical understanding of things. And so, and there's a sense in which I think—I can't speak with certainty—I think the Lord condescended in kindness to my frailty, and so I'd wait for feelings and I'd pray like sometimes for two hours till I had like a feeling of warmth or something. And I don't know if I generated that myself, psychosomatically. I don't know if it was like digesting something I ate three hours earlier. If, the, if God the Father is like, you're a knucklehead, but okay, zap. Very quickly, I got weaned off of that. Very quickly, within a month. But I had sort of, and I'd equate, I'd equate how I was pleasing to God, and I'd equate whether I was being filled with the Spirit by how I felt. And the more elevated I felt, and the more... Um, uh, I don't know, spiritual, I felt, whatever that means, right? I'd equate to that. And then you read a passage like this, like, no, you're being thankful? You're spirit-filled. Are you submitting to one another? You're being spirit-filled. Are you speaking psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? You're being spirit-filled. Like, that's the evidence. And then you get into the family, like, husbands, how are you doing with your wife? You're being spirit-filled. It's, it's far less, um, it's far less, like, esoteric. Not that the Spirit can't do those other things. So Paul does talk about, like, he was caught up in the Spirit of the third heaven, right? Um, yeah, the Spirit can, and the Spirit certainly operates experientially in our lives through the experience of guilt and conviction, right? So the Spirit can give elevated emotional states. People testify to that. That's not the telltale signs of being filled with the Spirit. That's my point. So I'm not trying to knock that. 
but we can chase around. I want an experience. I want to feel. There's no promise of those things. The Spirit does as he wills. What we do know is if you feel the Spirit, this is what it looks like. This is the fruit it bears, and this is the, the, the fertile ground that that grows in, which is the Word. That was what was so interesting to me in this, is just how, not mundane, I don't want to say mundane like it's boring, but non-ordinary, yeah, ordinary, non-mystical it is. Um, and the metric for measuring my spirit-filledness is the metric of my willingness to submit to others, my willingness to be thankful at all times as opposed to grumbling, and my willingness to speak and sing spiritual psalms and psalms to each other. That, that's the metric of, you want to know if you're spiritual. Then you can move into, like, how's your marriage doing? How spirit-filled are you? How are your kids doing? How spirit-filled are they? It's very ordinary. Yeah, that's probably a better word. Um, none of this is mystical. None of it. Um, at least as Ephesians is dealing with it. Not to say there aren't at times in the New Testament mystical elements, but I think the temptation is you read about those, you're like, I want that. I want to be caught up to the third heaven. I want to speak in other languages. Like, and maybe by the Spirit's will, you will. Here's what I know it looks like. And the flip would be where this is absent, I don't care what you think you're saying, you're not filled by the Spirit. You know, um, so this is the metric to judge by, not uh, ecstatic experiences and things like that. Any follow-up thoughts on any of that? I have one more. Oh, George is going. Get the microphone. Get that man. The five people who listen, George, want to hear this. The, the one more thing is, uh, if you have any thoughts on... Uh, I have a conversation that I'm going to have with a friend about the nature of um, emotional experience in the life of faith. And I think the friend and I are coming from different, I think we'd acknowledge that emotions play some role in, in our relationship with the Lord, but it's not, I, I'm anticipating some conflict over that. Uh, what you just said sounds like uh, the Holy spirit does give emotional dynamics in the Christian life, but there in this text, especially there's uh, clear identifications of the spirit with a life that's generally uh, wise, like walking in the will of the Lord, discerning what the will of the Lord is in an, in an embodied way. Um, do you have any thoughts in terms of like, well, what I, are the specific I, emotional dynamics? I don't think Paul's giving an exhaustive list of the evidences of the spirit. I, w- I would uh, think even here, thankfulness is, I think you could qualify as an emotion. Joy, peace. I mean, so the fruit of the spirit is emotional. What it's, what it, all I'm saying is they're ordinary emotions. In other words, as opposed to like feeling the, the spirit wash and I have supernatural joy. Like, I don't know if you could tell you have supernatural thankfulness. You just be a thankful person to God. Like, that's all I'm looking at is, are you giving thanks to God in all circumstances and for all things? Great. I guess I'd assumed as a new believer when it was spiritual joy, I would know. It would make all other joys seem pale. Like, no, you're being thankful. Like, you're joyful. So absolutely, there are emotional components. I'm, I'm more making the contrast between spiritual emotions that I, I'm teasing myself. I'd assumed as a believer that when it was the spirit, I'd somehow know my, like, you know, Ghostbuster sense would go yeah. off, and it would be, woo. I, I did the same okay, thing. yeah. So emotions are absolutely critical. If you don't have delight or joy in God, and I think Piper would argue this quite compellingly, ever, you're not a Christian. 
Like, Christians love God. Christians love his son. Christians delight and treasure his son. Waxing and waning. So I don't for a second want to say emotional experience isn't important. But most of the time, if I'm not careful myself, and when I talk to other people, they will speak of their experience of the Holy Spirit almost exclusively in their emotional states. And here we get things beyond emotional states. The fruit, the spirit operating in your life is. Um, so I don't care what, what emotional state you're having. If you're always grumbling and complaining, you ain't filled by the spirit. Right? That, that's the point. I don't care what type of other things you've got. If you're unwilling to, if you're always fighting for your rights, you're not filled by the spirit. If you're not, if you don't like psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord in your heart, you're not filled with the Spirit. And then you move into the family. Your husband is like, I, I'll, I'm not going to raise up my kids. That's what the youth pastor is for. You're not filled with the Spirit. Like, this is this is what the fruit the Spirit bears out in in life. Um, and or at least you're not as filled as you should be, right? I mean, I, I don't want to make an absolute failure there, but. Those are the metrics to be looking at. It's, it's, it's not usually the metrics we use. You ought to be able to say, man, I look back over the last year and I see the Spirit's work in my life because I see that I'm surrendering my, my life and my rights for my wife more. I'm growing in skill and intentionality in discipling my children. And I'm growing and delighting in corporate worship more and more. Like, those would be the evidences I'd look for for the Spirit's work in your life, as according to Ephesians. And Galatians has another list that's not in contrast, but it's not like these are the five things. So Galatians can add fruit of the Spirit that are a little more distinct. Um, am, I, am I hitting it where you're getting at? Or? So no, emotions are there, but I think they're, again, or, they can be ordinary emotions um, from our experience. Well, and, I, and I think in our own experience, God does tend at times to give us powerful emotional experiences. I've, I've been out for a walk and just been stunned at his goodness. You see, you just see like a nature scene. He's like, God's ruling over all this. And, you know, you choke up. You know. And those are, those are great blessings. And God does do that. He made us to experience peak emotions. I don't want to say he doesn't. The danger can be um, we start measuring that as the metric. Well, other things can raise peak emotions. And so some churches have gone to, okay, rock concerts raise pretty peak emotions. Let's do that. Um, or, to let's not pick on that alone. You know, play one more verse lightly in the background of just as I am, because we'll raise emotional states that way. And, okay, I mean, whether or not we have piano while people are examining themselves, I don't think soft, soothing music makes you more repentant, you know. We do community. It's not like it hurts, but if you're leaning on that, if you're trying to emotionally manipulate, that's not good. Um, so that's that. So I don't want to discount that there can't be powerful, powerful times of emotion. Well, it's like when we get to husbands love your wives. There have been moments where, according to uh, Proverbs six, I've been drunk with love with my wife. Right. That's not the metric that I'm supposed to use to measure my love for my wife. The metric that I should use for loving my wife is a much more challenging one. Self-denial. Willingness to suffer and die. 
right? Like that's the metric I should use. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might wash her with the sanctifying water of the word. That, there's a metric to measure my love for my wife, not my feelings. It's not to discount the feelings, but we can chase after them when what we should be chasing after is that, not discounting. I mean, I know this gets tricky because the other, there's, there's two ditches on every road. The other ditch on the other side of the road just says, just do your duty, do what you're supposed to do, and don't ignore your feelings. We're not saying that either. But we can chase after feelings like fireflies, like I want to get that peak high again. And I think God knows when we need those mountaintop emotional experiences and knows better than we probably do. Well, he certainly knows better than we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, any, any other thoughts on any of that? Anyone else hear anything differently about being filled with the Spirit or any other perspectives or things you've heard or taught or anything on this? Um, Nobody. Oh, Renee Lucia. Okay. Well, I was thinking of John um, 16, uh, like starting with um, probably 7. It talks about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's role mm. is to... Um, who he pretty much does not speak of himself, but he brings glory to Christ. He glorifies Christ. Right. And Which I think is why he prefers using the word to do his speaking. Yes. Certainly at times the Spirit reveals to someone, that, but it's not surprising that the majority of the Spirit's communicative work is in the word. Yes. And even when um, Jesus was being tempted by Satan, what did he use right. in that warfare? Right. right. Yeah, the word of God. Right. No, the, so you see the work of the Spirit. Verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Holy Spirit has a convicting role. If you find yourself indifferent to your sin or thinking you need more conviction, I'd pause. Sometimes people wonder, like, should we ever pray to someone other than God the Father? Because certainly the model in Scripture we get is with the Spirit on our end helping us, interceding, through the mediatorial work of Christ, we pray to the Father. And that certainly is the primary, central, most repeated picture of prayers. Trinitarian, the Spirit's helping me on my end. Christ bridges the gap through his, his high priestly presence in the very throne room of God. Our prayers make it to the God the Father. And I think the best answer to that question would be, certainly, I think something like that should be the norm of our prayer life. But to the degree that we're praying uh, for the ministry that Scripture has revealed that different members of the Trinity um, perform, it seems appropriate. So I need conviction. Holy Spirit, convict my heart. Seems wholly appropriate. He's, God's Word reveals that's what He does. I suppose you could say, Fathers, convict me with your Holy Spirit. That'd be fine too. Um, but the, yeah, the Spirit does not want to draw attention to Himself. So there are some people who say we should never pray the Holy Spirit because he doesn't want attention. I'm fine with it if you're praying along the lines of the ministry Scripture uh, reveals they operate in. Jesus interceding on our behalf, praying to Jesus. I mean, Phil, Philip, Philip, Stephen gets stoned to death. and he, Jesus, he sees Jesus and he speaks to him. So there's at least one example of praying to Jesus. Um, and you don't want to make rules and laws there. But certainly... If you're struggling, if you think, I, I don't take my sin as seriously as I need to, 
That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I'd be, I'd be banging on that door. Uh, he also brings to mind the words that Jesus has said. Um, where does it say that? Um, uh, 14. I, what, 14? He will glorify me, for he will take all that is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Um, yeah, so the Holy Spirit is going to trans- protect the word. There is a promise for inspiration. Um, and then, so by the time Ephesians come, as even as some of the New Testament is being written, the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. So the Spirit transmits the Word, protects the Word, and then uses and wields the Word. Um, so when you and I do evangelism or counseling or whatever, we're hoping, here's the Word, Spirit, slash away, do your work. Um, that's our, our hope in evangelism or in counseling or in encouragement or anything um, is... The Spirit would take up the Word and and apply it. So yeah. Yeah, and I always think of the passages. I couldn't find them where if a fa- if a son asks for a egg, would you give him a scorpion? Where is that? In Luke, it's in Luke ten. Okay. Ten. It's and, in ten. And it says, uh, "How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those mm. who ask?" And how I pray regularly for more of the Holy Spirit that I may walk in wisdom and discernment. And I pray it for others, <laughs> that God will send his Holy Spirit 11. to convict someone. Luke 11. Okay. Luke 11. If you then, verse 13, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? But the best example I can use to, to destroy, not destroy, to, to um, challenge the, the, the romantic... Um, existential, powerful experience notion of the Holy Spirit. Jesus returns from temptation in the power and filled with the Spirit. And it's seen in his teaching. It's seen in his resistance to sin. Nowhere is Jesus speaking in tongues that we know of. Nowhere is Jesus... It's what Luke frames it. So he goes out, he gets baptized, he goes out, the Spirit descends on him like a dove. And the first evidence of the Spirit is how powerfully Jesus resists temptation and responds with, with God's word to the devil. And then he comes back and he's working miracles and he's teaching and he's teaching and he's teaching. And that's the evidences of the Spirit, the mark of the Spirit in Jesus' life. It, they're mostly those ordinary things. It, it's common or ordinary I don't know I don't want to downplay it I'm trying to make the contrast though between and I just know as a new believer I wanted experience and I wanted you know un extraordinary things and the ordinary means of God's grace are prayer the word corporate fellowship I mean these are the normal means God uses to give grace to his people there are extraordinary means he t- takes John up in the spirit on the Lord's day and into heaven to see things that's less common. And you can maybe have a secret longing for that, but if you're just holding out like it's that or nothing, this is how God's taught us to be filled with the Spirit and to follow His, His will and word in those things. So, and any, oh. I'm sorry. Am nope. I talking too much? Stop me at any time. Fine. But I also was so impressed always about how um, Peter denied Christ three <laughs> times. And then, after he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he is preaching... And Acts, and all these people are, I mean, he would, with boldness. boldness. Oh, boldness. yeah. No, Acts repeatedly, Peter, filled with the Spirit. Yes. And again, the filling is that notion of Peter, under the full control of yes. the Spirit, said, 
Exactly. So there's, there's a fearlessness and a courage and mm-hmm. a confidence in truth. Those are all evidences of the Spirit. Um, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not trying to say Ephesians, these are the only marks of the Spirit. These are some central marks of the Spirit. And the other marks of the Spirit are equally ordinary in the sense that you're still seeing some of the boldness, talking yes, yes. with confidence. There's nothing spooky about that. Right. It's really unusual for Peter because of what we know about him from before. Yes. But, yeah, those, those are the marks of the Spirit. Teaching with authority. That's what marveled Jesus' audience as he taught as one with authority. Yes. Um, yeah. Any, any other thoughts on any of this? Okay, I'm going to do a brief introduction to our series for next week, and then I'll let you guys go home. Um, so we're doing a series, probably five weeks, I think, as we frame that right now, to, to try to address a lot of issues have come up. And I don't normally like talking about current issues or trends if I think our body knows how to think through it clearly. Um, we didn't. We waited a long time to talk about uh, the LGBT, homosexual, those things, until it really was so complicated and so big. Okay, I think now it would be worth helping you think through this. In the first seven or eight years, I'd have people periodically ask me, uh, are you ever going to teach on that? I think our body knows what to think about that. I think, I think people know how to think pretty clearly on that. Um, and as I've talked to people, and there's so many claims being made, claims about our system, claims about us, claims about, and their moral claims these people are guilty you're guilty thinking through those things we ought to think through those things we ought to consider those things when someone charges you or me with sin you ought not to just say that's ridiculous you ought to examine yourselves and knowing how to think through that biblically so we're not going to be um, i'm not going to be dealing directly with issues because especially with issues, is this unjust or that unjust? Part of what you're fighting over is the facts and the narrative and like what, what has happened. Rather than arguing over the facts, here are biblical frameworks. Like, what's a biblical understanding of justice and injustice? That, that's going to be a message. And what's a biblical understanding of how much evidence you need to come to a moral judgment that something's wicked or evil to condemn someone? Because uh, I, I think a lot of what we see, especially with um, with the internet and social media, is we see ten seconds of a video, or we see this, and then we just that's wicked, and you just pour the condemnation on. You know, and the Bible would say things like, if one person's case seems right till another comes and examines him. And then I'll tell you the one of the most interesting things. Uh, I've had the hardest time trying to biblically define the sin of racism. Clearly. Um, I felt better after reading Piper's book, Bloodlines, which I found very helpful, that he admitted the same thing. He said he and his church leadership spent a month trying to hammer out a biblical definition of racism. It is really hard. Certainly, it involves pride, self-righteousness, a lack of loving your neighbor uh, or hating your neighbor. But how to distinguish that from being a jerk? You know, was that was that particular as- application of pride, self-righteousness, and unlovingness racism, or was that just being a jerk? How do you coordinate off and define? It is tough. I mean, really, it is tough. Um, and so, trying to take a week to okay, what is that? Because the racism is not a biblical term, 
And so if you are going to evaluate yourself, as I think it would be good, you know, if people are saying, hey, if you're white, you're probably racist, do a biblical self-evaluation. See if that's so. And what biblically that our culture calls racism can we agree is wicked and evil? I think there's a bunch of things that we could, we could say. The culture calls that racism. The Bible says that's evil. The culture says that's racism. The Bible says that. If you're doing these things, that's bad. So I think there's value in, in trying to come up with a biblical understanding so that we can judge ourselves rightly, so we can look at what's going on. And then finally, what, if any, responsibility do we have with systemic structures and things like that? And how, how do we interact with that? That's the scope. So at the end of five weeks, if, you, if you're better equipped to think through these things and size up these things, and you've got a better understanding of what justice and injustice is, you've got a better understanding of what the Bible condemns in racism, so you can measure yourself up, you've got a better understanding of how to live in this world, then that'll be the point now in success. We're not going to be dealing specifically, at least in the messages, with particular cases. Um, we may have time for that in the ABFs. But that's, that's the goal and the framework of what we're going to do. Everyone good? Everyone Jake? Okay. You are dismissed. Thank you.